This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, and these are the words that he pens. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We indeed are able Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. You have three points on your outline this morning. For those of you who like the anticipation, I'm going to dash your dreams this morning, so I'm going to give them to you all right now. You ready? Okay? These are the three movements that I see in the text this morning. These are the three scenes that I see in the text this morning. Number one, we'll see the request. This is the request that is made of James and John, or by James and John, rather. A second, we'll see the refusal. We'll see Jesus' response to their request for selfish seating arrangements. And then lastly, we'll see a review. We'll see a review. Jesus is going to say the same thing that he has already said in verses 42 through 45. The request first, the refusal second, the review third. Before we get there, let me deal for just a few brief moments here with verses 32 through 34. Verses 32 through 34 are the third and final of Jesus' foretelling death predictions. This is the third and the final time that Jesus foretells, he forecasts his death. He predicts his impending death. Look at verses 32 and 34 there. As they, that's Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Take note of the response there. Amazement and fear. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So, here's what we have taking place here. Again, as we have noted in in numerous uh, Sunday mornings uh, previous to this morning, prior to this morning, Jesus and his disciples are continuing toward Jerusalem. 
And we see here that Jesus is walking ahead of his disciples. What are we to make of that? Mark specifically tells us that Jesus is walking ahead of his disciples. Well, here's what we're to make of that. There's probably not anything out of the norm here. Jesus probably oftentimes walked a bit ahead of his disciples with his disciples in tow. But on this particular occasion, there seems to be some sort of earnest intensity about Jesus. I mean, Jesus has counted the cost and he is resolutely marching toward the cross. And so, presumably, seeing Jesus' resolve, Mark tells us in verse 32 that the disciples were two things. They were both amazed and they were afraid. Seeing Jesus' countenance, seeing Jesus' resolute face marching toward Jerusalem, the response of the disciples is that they were both amazed and afraid. William Cowper, the 18th century poet and hymn writer, uh, some of you might recognize the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, wonderful hymn. Cowper wrote those words. William Cowper, he once wrote this, the Savior, speaking about Jesus, what a noble flame was kindled in his breast when hasting to Jerusalem he marched before the rest. Jesus knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what will meet him when he gets there. And he is not turning back. Jesus' eagerness, perhaps even his unshakable, determined countenance, his face, the, the, his body language is communicating to the disciples something that leaves them absolutely astonished in this moment. Now the disciples were, were very well aware of the danger that Jesus, and subsequently themselves, because they are in tow here, would be in as they entered the region of Judea. That's the southern region. Jesus has been up in Caesarea Philippi. He's come back through Galilee. He's crossed over east to the Jordan River. And now he is crossing back over west into Judea. Okay? Jesus' disciples know that that is not, from a human perspective, the best idea. Okay? Judea, more specifically Jerusalem, is the hotbed, it's the center, it's the hub of all of Jewish religious life. That's where Jesus has, on more times than one, more occasion than one, clashed with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the religious elite. And so Jesus' disciples are, are, are running the, the, the rewind reel in their mind, and they're thinking, hey, we've seen things before that we don't like when it happens there, and we're getting ready to go back. We're getting ready to go back. Matter of fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry, uh, about the time that Jesus found out about the death of Lazarus, he said, let, Jesus said, let us go to Jerusalem again. And the disciples, who may be slow to learn, as we have seen, they're not dummies. And they replied to Jesus saying, Rabbi, the Jews were just now thinking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Uh, like, Hello? Jesus knows exactly what he'll encounter when he gets to Jerusalem. He's not walking in blindly. He's walking in resolutely. You see, Judea as a region wasn't safe, but Jerusalem, again, being the central hub of Jewish religious life, the headquarters of the Pharisees, that would have been far worse. This is the first time, as a matter of fact, in these verses that we're told specifically, we, we could anticipate earlier in our study that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, that he would be killed in Jerusalem. But this is the first time in Mark's gospel, in these verses, that that is explicitly stated. We are going to Jerusalem. 
The disciples had enough awareness to know that Jesus was walking into the jaws of death, but they also were aware of the fact that they were with him. That they were with him. And so they were frightened. Both of these verbs, amazed and afraid here in your Bible, they're both in the imperfect tense, meaning the disciples were continually, or this was an ongoing response in the disciples' hearts and minds, that they were amazed and afraid. And so now Jesus tells us a third time, this time with the most detail and this time with the most clarity that he will die. Look at verse 32 again, and taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them. We're going to Jerusalem. That's added detail there. That's the first time this is mentioned. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We said the word delivered in the past means to be subjected to the law, to be tried as a criminal. Jesus is going to be tried as a criminal, delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him. Another legal term there, meaning to be executed within the ramifications or the framework of the legal system. They'll put him to death, they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles, they'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But after three days he will rise. You see, the disciples certainly understood the danger of what Jesus was speaking about here. They're they're not so dense that they can't understand the danger in Jesus' words, but what they don't yet know is the purpose of it all. That's what they don't yet know. That's what they can't yet comprehend. Jesus, what is the purpose of it all? You see, each time that Jesus announced his death, it added to the disciples' perplexity. You see, nothing that was happening, at least from the disciples' perspective, was happening according to their plan. Remember, the disciples did not plan on a suffering Savior. The disciples did not have a context to file in their minds for a crucified Messiah. They were expecting a warrior Savior. And their perplexity is clearly seen in Luke's account of this very story. We're reading this story, we're studying this story from Mark's account, from Peter's account. Mark is the pen for Peter. But we see the disciples' perplexity so clearly in Luke's account of this very same story when Luke, who is a very bright physician, by the way, adds right after these words, but they, that is the disciples, understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. When I think about grasping, I think about going to the beach. We were on vacation here just recently. Everybody's probably been to the beach at some time or you've been to a sandy place, perhaps just a sandbox, but you grab a handful of sand and what happens? It tends to slip right through your grasp. Well, let that stick in your minds as a mental picture here as the information of Jesus' death is being relayed to the disciples. They didn't have the ability to grasp it. So like sand in the hands, it perplexed them. One thing I want you to notice here is that God is sovereignly and providentially in charge of all the events that's taking place. God has sovereignly and providentially laid out the road that Jesus has walked, is walking, and will continue to walk to the cross. And friends, it is no different with us. It is no different with us. God orchestrates and is intimately involved in every single step, every single moment, every single detail of your life and my life, down to the final breath. Spurgeon once wrote, Charles Spurgeon, said, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. God is in control. He's not ever backed into a corner. He's not ever trying to figure anything out. He keeps everything in perfect order. He sustains all things by the word of his power. He is the sovereign one. 
That's a very comforting doctrine. Spurgeon goes on and he says, under the most adverse circumstances, maybe you've been through some adverse circumstances, maybe you're sitting in here this morning with less than desirable adverse circumstances, even in those adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, Christians believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them all, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. We get a wonderful picture here of the sovereignty of God as Jesus marches ever closer to the cross. Friends, there are no accidents, there are no surprises with our God, there are no what-ifs, there are no how-did-this-happens, there are no last-minute change of plans, not one. Not one. God is sovereignly orchestrating every moment, every breath, every coming and going, every rising up and laying down. As a matter of fact, in his book, they were all written, the days that were ordained for you and for me, before there were yet a single one of them. And friends, this sovereign God can be trusted. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Are there ways that you are not trusting the sovereignty and the goodness of God? in your life right now. Just think for a moment. Are there ways in which you are not trusting the sovereignty, the divine control, the overseeing of God, the omnipotent, omniscient one with the affairs of your life? Are you treating him as suspect? Are you quick to praise him in the calm, but question him in the storm? Friends, let me remind you that whatever season of life you are in, he changes not. His character, his nature, and his attributes are steadfast. They are immovable. That's what the immutability of God means. His his character, his his character trait, the attribute of immutability means that God changes not. His sovereignty rules over all. And friends, that ought to be of great comfort to our souls. Let's turn our attention to the three movements of the scene here. First, if you are taking notes, the request. The request. Look at verses 35 through 37 in your Bible there. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he, Jesus, said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he And they said to him, Grant us one to sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Well, the utter failure of the disciples disciples to comprehend Jesus' words as he foretold his death, they are clearly, clearly illustrated in James and John's request for seating assignments in glory, right here in verses 35 through 37. I mean, if if, if you wonder, what does it mean that the disciples can't grasp the meaning of what Jesus is teaching? Well, their very question here, the very request that they make, it's such a clear illustration that they don't understand. But we should note that this request, though it was selfish, didn't just come out of thin air. I mean, uh, James and John did not just pull this request out out of a hat. They didn't just pull it out of their back pocket. James and John's request actually comes from a promise that in the coming kingdom, the disciples would sit on 12 thrones with Jesus. Well, we don't find that promise in Mark's gospel. Mark is writing primarily to a Gentile audience. 
And so he does not include that promise in his gospel narrative. But Matthew, on the other hand, who's writing primarily to Jews, includes this promise in his gospel. Uh, Keep your finger there in Mark for just a second, but turn over to Matthew chapter 19. I want to show you this promise. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 28. Matthew 19, verses 27 through 28. You'll remember last week, uh, Peter pipes up. Uh, This is one of those instances where uh, he may, after the fact, have wanted to put his foot in his mouth. Uh, But we're just like him, right? We oftentimes say things, and right after we say it, we wish we could kind of grab it back and and unsay it. Peter had just made the statement here, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. In case you didn't know... In case you didn't see that, in case case you didn't know that one of us left the tax booth, in case you didn't know that one of us left dad back and our boats back and our nets back and and we left other positions and status and relationships just in case you missed it, we've left everything to follow you. You can imagine Jesus is, maybe Jesus said nothing there in that moment. Maybe maybe there's just a short pause there. Maybe Jesus said, Peter, I know. I know, I know, okay? Pipe it down. We left everything and we followed you. What will we have then? Jesus answered this question saying, here's the promise as recorded in Matthew's gospel. Truly I say to you, in the new world, that is in glory as we see here in our text, or in the kingdom to come, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's where James and John's request comes from. They didn't pull it out of a hat. Uh, It wasn't just like, what are we going to ask Jesus for? I don't know. We'll ask him to sit on thrones next to him in glory. Yeah, let's do that. This was connected back to a very specific promise. The problem is that the disciples, just as they had been all along, are still anticipating that the Messiah's reign will be earthly. And so they want positions of authority when the time comes. I mean, this is kind of like... Uh, going to your parents, if you know you have some sort of inheritance, and uh, before mom and dad are dead, and saying, hey, uh, dad, uh, do you mind if I uh, go ahead and take your tool set? Uh, well, you're, you're asking for the inheritance before the death of your father. That's kind of like what's taking place here in the text. Again, uh, the disciples' perspective is all messed up. They're, they're thinking about Jesus' uh, coming reign as being an earthly reign, so they, they've missed that point. But they're asking for something ahead of time at the same time. They want positions of authority and prominence and status. They want to be noticed here. Notice how James and John framed their question, by the way. They asked, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we asked of you. Let me stop right there. Do you see what just happened? Look back at your Bible there. Look at the request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we asked of you. You see what just took place there? These guys are asking for Jesus' promise before they ever make the request. It's like, Jesus, sign the blank check and then we'll let you know what it is we want. Right? Jesus... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, Jesus looks at them, knowing what their intentions are, 
And uh, he says, fellas, you don't know what you're asking for. Their specific request was, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus will reply here, uh, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. In Jewish thought, though, the right hand of the king was the place of the greatest prominence and the left hand was the place of second greatest prom- uh, prominence. So you've got the most coveted seat on the right, the second most coveted seat on the left. And so what are James and John really asking for here? Well, they're asking for the best seats in the house. They're asking for the best seats of the house in the coming glory. They're requesting the first and second place of power. That's what they're asking for. Now, here's what's astonishing about this. Maybe it's not so astonishing that the disciples asked the question, but their timing in asking the question, wow. I mean, Jesus has just recounted how he is going to be crucified, killed. And the first thing on their minds is, can we sit in seat number one and two? But friends, we're a whole lot like them. We're a whole lot like them. The amazing thing isn't that this incident happened. It's not that the question was asked, but rather when they asked the question that so defies understanding. Jesus has just outlined the most definite and detailed foretelling of his death, and the disciples, all they can seem to think about is the seating arrangements in the kingdom. The disciples' dream of sitting in seat one and seat number two brushed aside all the talk of Jesus' death and the resurrection as mere pessimism. It's like, Jesus, stop being so preoccupied with your death. The problem is, they're preoccupied with who's the greatest. Jesus' words at this point weren't penetrating their earthly worldview. It would take a cross to reorient their worldview. And that was coming shortly. That was coming shortly. Now finish this sentence for me. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Luke 6.45. If you don't have that memorized, I would encourage you to memorize it. Luke 6.45. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouth serves as a barometer for our heart. If you want to know what's going on in the heart, listen to the mouth. Okay? You can listen to others' mouths, but I would encourage that we listen more to our mouth than we listen to the mouths of others. Okay? Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, in this case, James and John's request reveals their heart. It reveals three things that I want you to take note of specifically here. One, it reveals their superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus has just said prior, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. James and John's request here betrays their heart, their mouth betrays their heart, and what it reveals is is they have gravely misunderstood what it means to follow Jesus. At least in this moment. They're continuing to learn, and they will get it. The disciples aren't stupid. They're not dumb. They're not dense. They're bright individuals. They're learning as they go. 
Jesus is increasing the capacity of their hearts uh, to see what exactly is unfolding and what it means and, and, and how Jesus' uh, death and resurrection accomplishes the great salvation that he's been speaking of from day number one. But James and John's request reveals their heart. It reveals, first of all, that they have a superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Friends, let me ask you, do you have a clear or a superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus? Your words and your actions will tell the truth. Secondly, James and John's request revealed their inflated opinion of their own importance. They had an inflated view of their own importance. They, they thought of themselves greater than they should have. Uh, raise your hand, just curious here, uh, not pridefully raise your hand, but just so I can have an idea. Raise your hand if you have Romans 12, 1 and 2 memorized. Good, good, good. I'm not going to call on anybody to recite it this morning, don't worry. Okay, Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you don't have it memorized word for word, you probably have a good idea of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's my question. Are you familiar with Romans 12, 3? Romans 12, 3. I mean, wonderful verse there, passage there, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right? Romans 12, 3. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But instead, think of yourselves with sober judgment, according to the measure of grace that has been given to you. Our natural tendency, our fleshly propensity, is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Jesus says, sober your view. Sober your view. The disciples had an inflated opinion of their own importance. This is particularly challenging for anyone, and myself included, who is in a position of leadership. Oftentimes, with a position of leadership comes an exalted view of self-importance, an exalted view of value, an, exal an exalted view of worth. We need to be careful. We're very careful. When we see it, we need to not play with it. We need to repent. We need to repent. It's sin. Have a sobered view of yourself. Third, the disciples misunderstood how God measures greatness. They had a misunderstanding of how God measures greatness. Remember, I gave you the equation as we opened this morning. Denying yourself plus serving the needs of others equals greatness in the kingdom. The disciples didn't have the correct math at this point. You see, being a servant, which every single one of us are called to be, being a servant runs against the grain of our selfish heart. We don't have any problem being served. We, we much like being served. But we struggle to serve others. It's counter to our opinion of ourselves. We need to pray that God would give us a humble heart of a servant. Being a servant after the pattern of Jesus, it's a divine enablement, not a human inclination. In other words, you need to ask God for it. You can't conjure up a servant's heart. Ask God to give it to you and to give it to you in increasing measure, to reveal to you areas uh, where your service is lacking. Repent of that sin, put it off, and put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of its maker. It should be noted here that even though the disciples failed at this point to grasp the purpose and the significance of Jesus' death, they still believed in him. 
I, I love this here. They're struggling to, to get it. They're struggling to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. They're struggling to understand Jesus' words. They have an earthly understanding of Jesus' reign. But in light of all that, they still believe him. They're still with him. They're still able to connect glory to a Galilean carpenter who's heading to a cross. There's amazing confidence and loyalty here. Though they misunderstood how it would be accomplished, the disciples never doubted Jesus' ultimate triumph. They were unclear about how it was going to be ushered in and what it was going to look like. And they had a sinful preoccupation with self. But they didn't doubt Jesus' ultimate triumph in the end. And they continued to follow. There's the request. James and John, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory? Can we sit in seat number one and two, position the power number one and two? Can we have the best seats in the house in the coming kingdom? Well, here's Jesus' response. Point number two on your outline there is the refusal. Look at verses 38 through 41. I just had a song that flew my mind. It's like, if I could turn back time. All right, let's do something with this. The refusal, okay? Here's Jesus' response here. If Jesus made the promise in Matthew 19 that the, that the disciples would sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom and judge the 12 tribes of Israel, which is a promise that he did make, then why does he now respond with a refusal? Why does Jesus say to James and John, you don't know what you're asking? Well, let me back up here for just a second. The word translated no, Jesus says you don't know what you're asking. The word translated no means to have a deep, perceptive knowledge. So Jesus is saying, guys, you are lacking a deep and perceptive knowledge. Your understanding is very surface level here. You don't know what it is that you're asking for. And the word ask I don't want to lose you here in, in syntax, but the word ask in the Greek is in the reflexive form. That means it's directed towards self. Okay, so here's what you need to get. What Jesus is saying here is not only do you not know what you're asking for, but you're asking for yourselves. In other words, your request is selfish. Not only do you not have a deep and perceptive understanding of what you're asking for, but you're asking for self. You're asking selfishly. The disciples can't shake their preoccupation with who is going to be the greatest. As a matter of fact, even as the disciples gathered in the upper room and Jesus washed their feet, most of us are familiar with that account in John chapter 13, but in Luke's account of that, in Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This was not an isolated incident, friends, and it's not isolated in our hearts either. Selfishness, the weeds of selfishness will be ever growing if we're not ever gardening. While Jesus has been teaching about denying self, the disciples just can't get past who's the greatest and we're just like them. Friends, a self serving attitude, which we all struggle with, it's not meant to be satisfied. A self, uh, a self focused, self serving attitude is not meant to be satisfied, it's meant to be put to death. Put self to death. Crucify self. For I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live. Christ lives in me. 
Now the life I live in the flesh, I no longer live for myself, but for him who is crucified for me. The DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin inserts me into the middle of my own little universe. The one place reserved for God and God alone. Sin reduces my field of concern down to my wants, my needs, my feelings. Sin, sin is all about me. That's what we see here in the text. Friends, it should be noted that God doesn't honor selfish requests. Remember James's words? James chapter 4, he said, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and, do not, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly that you might spend it on your own desires. God doesn't answer selfish requests. Now, let me pause right there and say there are times where God will answer a selfish request, but it's always in discipline. It's always in discipline. We don't have time to look at the text, but just write down Psalm 106, verse 7 through 15. Psalm 106, 7 through 15. There is an instance of God answering a selfish request, but doing it in discipline. What kind of request does God answer? Well, 1 John chapter 5 gives us the answer, right? This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his what? His will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have that which we asked of him. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We can have great confidence that God will answer our requests if we pray them according to his will. How do you know God's will? Become very well acquainted with God's word. Become very well acquainted with God's word. Jesus speaks about the cup that he is going to endure and the baptism that he is going to endure here. Uh, let me just summarize some of my notes. You can find this later on on the website. But the cup here was a metaphor for the life and the experience that God handed out to men. So it's my lot in life. It's my, it's my cup. This is the cup that God has given me. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said on more than one uh, occasion, my cup runneth over. The way God has dealt with me, it runs over. And so a cup describes, or it's a metaphor for the life and the experience that God hands out to men. But Jesus also speaks about uh, a baptism with which he'll be baptized. The word baptism here does not speak of the ordinance of baptism that we observe here in a local church. The word baptism here means to be submerged, to be submerged. What Jesus is saying here is he is about to be submerged, the cup, the lot, the circumstances that God is about to give him are going to result in him being submerged, baptized under the wrath of God. Baptized under the wrath of God. And so Jesus looks at his, his disciples here, James and, uh, and John, and he says, can you do that? Are you ready for that? And look how self responds here. Look at your Bible. Yes, we can. Yes, we can, they say. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. You think you're able, but you don't know what you're asking for. Little did they know that not... Uh, and not the near, or not the uh, too distant future, rather, 
they indeed, specifically James and John, would share their cup uh, with Jesus and they would share the baptism of being a follower of Jesus. James would be the first, the first martyr at the hands of Herod. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. John would experience great persecution and presumably die in exile on the island of Patmos. Revelation chapter 1. Look at the resentment. Look at verse 41 here. Mark writes, when they heard it, when the rest of the disciples heard it, they became indignant at James and John. What do you think is the case of the rest of the disciples being filled with anger and resentment as they hear James and John's request here? Let, let, me, let me make a, uh, a thought to you here. Let me give you a thought. I think the rest of the disciples respond with resentment. They respond with, with an indignant attitude because they wanted the very thing that James and John asked for, they just didn't get the word in first. James and John beat them to the punch. And so their hearts were full of resentment and anger and bitterness. We oftentimes see this in our children, right? Everything can be just fine, just peachy, just dandy, until one of the kiddos asks for something, and now everybody wants it. Right? Nobody wanted it 30 seconds ago, but now, now the whole gaggle of you want it. It's like, you heard it, and it's me. It's me, it's me. And the fact that you asked for it first makes me angry and frustrated and mad and resentful and bitter. I think it's what we're seeing here in the text. The perceived lack of fairness caused resentment. The other disciples want the same things, but James and John asked for it first so the other disciples think they might somehow be excluded in some way uh, from this privilege of having power seat number one as power seat number two. So, let's close this morning. Number three, the review. The review, okay? This is verses 42 through 45. Look at your Bible there. Jesus calls them, that's the 12, to himself, and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, is oftentimes understood as the theme verse of Mark's gospel. So if you are a Bible writer inner, uh, or a highlighter, or a marker of any sort, you might want to mark... Uh, Mark 10.45 there. That, that is oftentimes thought of and referred to as being the theme verse of Mark's gospel. Jesus closes this morning uh, re, uh, reiterating a very important lesson. And the lesson is that the first will be last and the last will be first. And Jesus has been teaching that lesson all along. Has he not? I mean, from day one with his disciples, he has been modeling teaching that serving others is the way to greatness. The problem here is the disciples are acting like Gentile rulers who lord over, the word lord over there is absolute rule, and exercise authority, the word there is almost tyranny. The, the, the Gentile rulers absolutely lord over in a heavy-handed, tyrannical type of way over their subjects. And so Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he makes quite clear the differing standards of greatness in his kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world, the standard of greatness is power. The test is how many people can I control? How many, how, many, how many great armies of servants can be at my beck and call? How many people can I impose my will upon? 
But Jesus says that his kingdom standard of greatness is service. Greatness consisted not in reducing others to your service, but in reducing yourself to serving others. How are we doing there, Cape Bible Chapel? I pray that that would be a distinguishing mark of our local congregation. That we would serve others, selflessly, sacrificially serve others. Let me remind you there's a difference between serving and having a servant's heart, by the way. You can serve even if you've lost a servant's heart. Okay, we want both, right? How can you tell if you've lost a servant's heart? Well, jealousy and pride and a desire to impress people, an overcritical spirit, uh, all begin to emerge. You, you begin to, to long after, to want, to crave, to lust after, to expect being appreciated. That's how you know if you've lost a servant's heart. You can serve all day long and do it with a really crummy heart. So can I. Pretty well. Pretty well. Jerry Bridges once said, the test, uh, the, the true test of being a servant is if you're willing to be treated like one. The true test of a servant is if you're willing to be treated like one. Let me close this morning by saying this Roy Hessen wrote a little book, which I believe is out of print now. It's a little tiny paperback, and I so wanted to bring it up this morning and show it to you, but I have apparently loaned it to somebody and never gotten it back. Uh, such is the lot in life, the cup of a pastor. Yeah, I, book, I, have, I don't even know where all my books are, because uh, I want to give them out, and sometimes I don't get them back. But Calvary Road, it's a great little book. Write it down there, Calvary Road. Uh, the main theme of the book is repentance, okay, repentance. But there's a little chapter in the book uh, that, that Roy Hessen includes, which is fantastic on servanthood. And in this chapter, Hessen notes five things. They're super brief here. Uh, five things, five challenging marks of a true servant. Let me give them to you here. Maybe you can write them shorthanded. Number one, a servant, a true servant is willing to do whatever the master tells him to do. A true servant is willing to do whatever the master, that is the capital M master, the Lord Jesus, tells him to do. Now, here's how the servant does it. Secondly, without being thanked. Number three, without being critical of others. Number four, without being proud of my serving. And number five, and lastly, confessing when all is said and done that all we have accomplished is our duty. I've only done what is my duty. That, that right there, friends, are the marks of a true servant. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's telling his disciples, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great, die. Die to yourself, plus serving the needs of others equals greatness in the kingdom. Will you be great? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for... Uh, the example that we see in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for his sacrificial servanthood that led him to Calvary's cross for us. Thank you that he walked resolutely into Jerusalem and that he was crushed there for the penalty of sin. Lord, I pray this morning, thanking you for those that you have saved, that you have snatched out of the kingdom of darkness that you have brought into the kingdom of light, and I pray for those this morning who may still be fast-bound in sin. 
and nature's light. Pray that you would get a hold of their hearts, Lord, that, that you would draw them to faith and repentance. Uh, Lord, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They would confess there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They would bow their heart at the name of Jesus. And uh, Lord, they would become new creations. Lord, do heart work in all of us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you do radical heart surgery. Cause us to become the humble servants that Jesus was. We pray these things in his name. Amen.